Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, <clears throat> for the maturing Christian, uh, spiritual formation is the process of being formed in, into the character of Christ or the likeness of Christ. Uh, we've talked about this before, but it's a, a conversation that is important and ongoing for us. We, in, we endeavor as believers to become people of compassion, of forgiveness, of grace, um, of care, people that live out of grace, of offering you know, the message of Jesus to others, um, to the world through love and through sacrifice, of you know, serving people and things like that. We desire to be a distinctive people, set apart in a sense, right? Like Peter and John in Acts 4.13, who by all other estimation were just very normal, ordinary men. We saw that what made them extraordinary, we talked about this last week, was that they had been simply in the presence of Jesus, right? That they had just walked with him, that they had spent time with him, that uh, he had rubbed off on them, so so to speak, right? Um, And we know that his presence transforms us. It changes us as outlined in Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, if you remember those verses, uh, becoming a people who no longer conform ourselves to the patterns of this world, but we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that God is speaking into us and changing us and, and transforming us. And as transformation occurs in us into the likeness of Christ, the heart of Christ drives us then to make disciples of all peoples, right? You know, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded uh, as we see in the Great Commission uh, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And uh, we've looked at that quite a bit lately. So that basically says to us that We practice the presence of God, right, leading to our formation, our spiritual formation in Christ, which simultaneously, in in the same breath and all of that, we're being called to mission. We're being called to God's mission. And I hope we see from all that that the spiritual life is actually going somewhere. We don't sit on our laurels. We don't just sit around, right? It's an invitation to journey deeper into the spiritual life with Jesus. And then in that, we go out to others um, since it's not about us, right? It's about Jesus. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about God's glory through God's mission. And in our language here at 6-8, uh, we like to say we, we follow Jesus and we live as Jesus did and we manifest Jesus to the Eastern Main Line and beyond. It's basically saying the same thing, right? That we're sitting in his presence, um, that we're being formed, that we're, that we're going out, you know, that we're uh, on mission. We've talked a great deal, as I said in the past, of, uh, in past sermons of our the, the great commission calling that we have upon our lives. We've done that recently quite a bit. And it's very intuitive, I think, to know that it's the presence of Jesus which is our life source, which sort of gives us our power in the world and all that kind of stuff. And, but I want to really focus on that middle term, being formed, being spiritually formed in Christ, right? And to begin, I want to ask you the question, oh, the yummies are here. Amen. Thank you, Joe. If you don't know, Joe owns... Cat, well, I, I have a heart. Where, say it for me. Delice? 
delish es chocolat. I can't say that. I, I, feel, I feel like I'm saying it wrong, but he owns that place and he makes yummy stuff. Anyway, but um, so we've spoken about this stuff in the past. We know that Jesus is uh, our power. He's our, he's our, you know, sort of source of, of all this stuff. And so we're going to talk today about being formed, being spiritually formed. And, and I want to start by asking you the question, um, what happens to your attitude, what happens to your sort of your chi, right? When, when somebody interrupts your daily routine, right? How do you react when somebody kind of steps into your, your stuff and takes over your day? Because whether we not like to admit it or not, uh, we like to be in control of our lives. We like to be in control of ourselves. We, have, we all have this circle of control that we draw around ourselves uh, and within that circle are all the things of life which, which we like to have a handle on, that we like to be in control of, right? And some people draw that, tr- that circle a little closer to themselves, some a little farther out. And the more power and the more influence you have in the world, um, the farther out you're able to draw your circle. I was thinking about Meryl Streep and, and what's, what's her name? Anne Hathaway, right? Anne Hathaway and um, The Devil Wears Prada, great movie right? And Streep's character, you know, had a very wide circle. She could draw her circle way far out because she was a very powerful woman in the, in the fashion world. And Hathaway's character had to draw her circle pretty close. You know, she almost didn't have her own life. She was her administrative assistant or personal assistant, whatever she was to Streep's character. And uh, even to the point where they told her what to wear, how to dress, you know, so she didn't re- she couldn't even make her own decisions. She didn't have her own time. And when Streep's character was, you know, her routine was interrupted, there was hell to pay for Hathaway's character, right? It was just, you know, very controlling, you know, and spiritual formation for us is the process of letting Jesus break your circle and take over your life take over control of your life. And we use words very, you know, easily. We use words like faith and trust to describe that process. But I'll be honest, they are words that are easily voiced. But, you know, it's much more difficult to actually live them out, actually practice them. Talking to somebody this week, you know, we were talking about hitting our spiritual walls. Like in the spiritual life, you, you do come up against walls and it's what you do in that moment. It's, it's, it's got, you know, it feels like God's like distant, but he's not. That's the moment where we can choose to go deeper or not. We can choose to run and avoid, or we can choose to go deeper. Now, spiritual formation would be much more palatable to us if, if the scriptures taught that we form ourselves, right, into the likeness of Christ, that I could do it. But it doesn't say that. And we don't form ourselves, right? That's not what it teaches. And that's why so many people don't really fully engage in their spiritual formation, since it does mean that I have to give up control of myself, that I have to submit myself to Christ. And in Christian terms, it means allowing Jesus to be Lord of my life. That's what it really means. Not just Savior, but Lord of my life, down to the very thoughts that I entertain in my brain. I take every thought captive to Christ, right? And to those that like their control in life, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, 
it doesn't bring them immediate gratification. It doesn't work. It, you know, it seems too slow. It seems too ethereal. It seems not valuable to us. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't give me what I want right now, even though what I want sometimes is not what's best for me. Spiritual formation is a slow bake, right? It takes a lot of time. It takes a lifetime, right? And for us mortals, it's always easier to do than to be. To do than to be. Scripture teaches the way of the Christian life is to be formed by Christ. It's in the passive voice. The path of, the path of submission we make ourselves sort of available to the Spirit of God and the transformative power of His Word in our lives. Now, there is an effort to be made on our part here, right? But the earning of purpose, of meaning, of value, and the transformative power of our hearts are in divine hands and not ours. Purpose, meaning, and value are ascribed to us. They're not earned. They're ascribed. They're given. They're placed upon us. Right? And transformation is performed in us by God, by the Spirit of God, by His Word, by that power, right? It's He who forms my heart. He's the great surgeon. All I have to do is climb up on the table, get naked, and let him do do surgery, right? We are born into a culture which views the world as an object to be controlled for our own purposes. It's what we're driven to especially as rugged Americans with our individualistic worldviews, we are a self-made people in a self-made land. We tamed this land. We shaped it. You know, we control it. We control our destinies, we like to think. Allowing ourselves to be spiritually formed by Jesus flies in the very face of this acculturation. It really does. It is the exact opposite direction. And manipulators don't like, or they don't take kindly to outside manipulation. We don't like to be manipulated, even if manipulation in the positive sense. We like to say that we did it. And so we grasp at information to take more control of the world around us because information is power. And we tend to view our, uh, you know, our control, control of our environment and our current situation and our future as essential to giving us meaning and purpose and value. So what we're saying here is that we reverse the order and we live as though doing determines our being. We live as though doing determines our being. Jesus' first temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, struck right at the issue of meaning and value and purpose, right? It was a temptation towards doing to validate your being, right? Do something to validate your being. It's the reversal of the divine order. It says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I'd be. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, you hear that? If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You can almost hear the demand, right? Do this thing and it will validate who or what you are. Or if you are really who you say you are, then do this to authenticate yourself. You need to do this so that we can all believe you. But we've got to look back at the end of chapter 3, just before this temptation of Jesus at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. It says this, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of... Yeah, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The temptations that uh, that Jesus faced, as well as ours, attach themselves you know, uh, to the very call and the very empowerment of God which define our meaning and value and purpose in life. The presence of the Spirit at his uh, baptism can be seen as Jesus' empowerment in his calling to ministry as the Messiah. He He was already being who he was. He already who was who he was, and, and he is empowered by the Spirit to be so, right, in this whole thing. There was no need for validation from anyone who demanded it, Satan or otherwise, right? He had nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. It was, and all temptation is, to reverse the roles of being and doing. The temptation is to do something in order to be valid, to have worth. But we have inherent value in Christ already. It's ascribed to us. And our doing as believers is birthed out of our being. Our doing is birthed out of our being. We are valued and we have purpose and meaning in Christ due to God's grace already. We don't have anything to prove. But humanity evaluates meaning and value and purpose out of what we do and how effective we are at it, right? And not the simple truth of who we are in Christ. I've just started watching, what's his name? Bill Gates' little uh, docu-series on on Netflix. Wonderful, man. The guy reads like 150 pages a minute with 90% retention. It's crazy. And he reads like really heavy stuff. You know, if you want to measure a person by what they do, there's a guy you can do it with, right? I'll never measure up to that, <laughs> right? But humanity evaluates that that way, right? Let's say you're a surgeon, and the American uh, Surgical Association puts on a big gala dinner, and you go to the dinner, but you bring your husband along who's, who's a high school janitor, right? And you show up and you, you sit down with everybody and your husband sits down and, and you're having dinner with all the other surgeons. And, and eventually, you know, uh, your husband is asked, what do you do, right? What do you do for a living? And when it's revealed that he's a janitor, 
there's usually the response of, oh, well, that must be interesting, right? And then the conversation goes on for about five more minutes, and then your husband retires to the porch outside to have a cigarette because nobody else really wants to talk to him anymore. They've put him in a category. His real being, his real meaning, his real value, his real purpose and all that don't really come into the conversation. It's not necessarily that people are trying to belittle. They simply don't have any other way of categorizing anybody. It's the way our culture works. It's a natural class-based system of thought. It's the way we approach people. He's got to do something that is perceived as greater to participate in the conversation. Or they just don't know what to do with him. Now, if he was a university professor of psychiatry or physics, you know, whatever, although not their field, he might last, you know, a little bit farther in their scrutiny, right? And, you know, the conversation might go for an hour. But if he was a professor of New Testament theology, the, the conversation might only go for 15 minutes, right? 10 minutes more than the janitor's. Because we evaluate people, uh, you, know, on, uh, you know, on what somebody does. And, and these days, people just don't value janitors and New Testament theology professors, right? Or pastors, for that matter. You should see when I am at a party and they say, what do you do? And I'm saying, I'm a pastor. They're like, uh. And they're like, <laughs> I'm going to go get a drink. And they walk away, right? Not everybody, but many people. We just don't have the street cred, Right? Because what we do in this world doesn't seem to really add to the value of this world in their estimation. You know, suicide rates are high among adolescents. They're even higher among the elderly, apparently. And maybe this is the reason that we evaluate people, we evaluate worth by what somebody does. An adolescent is still sort of like wondering what they're going to do in life. Do you remember being in high school, wondering what the heck you were going to do, what your major was going to be in college? That was like nerve-wracking to me. Maybe you guys were a lot more confident than I was, but I, that like sent me in a tizzy, right? Tanner's psychology, we had the back-to-school night when Tanner's psychology professor said this week a, a, a thing that I've already heard before, that um, the average kid has the stress levels of a 1950s psych ward patient And they don't have any of the boxes checked off like adults do already. In other words, like if you look at my business card, it says father, uh, husband, pastor, artist. Those are my boxes. I've checked those off, right? Like we have, I have a wife, I have a job, I have a cat, I have a house. You know, I know who I am more so, you know, I'm, 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 but kids don't. That's a lot of pressure. And ironically, we ask kids the question, what are you going to be when you grow up? It might be more honest to say, what are you going to do with your life, right? We do ask that as well, I guess. But no wonder they feel lost, right? Because we've said to them that your doing determines your being. Your doing determines your being. And as a result, we have wealthy actresses paying off colleges under the table to get their kids in because everything's wrapped up in education and career and success and what you are, you know, what you do out there, right? And then when you retire with a gold watch and a plaque on the wall, you sit around finding all of your value and worth and what you did for the past 50 years gone. And suddenly 
you're just being without actually knowing who or what you are. And you feel valueless and purposeless and meaningless. And in the spiritual formation of our soul towards Jesus, doing flows out of being. Doing flows out of being, right? Not the other way around. We have inherent purpose and value in Christ. It's God's work in us which forms us spiritually into the likeness of Christ. As God's own children, our being is set. I am secure. I have value. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Very familiar passage, but it's one we really need to wrestle with. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, with Christ. Now, that's passive voice. That's done to us, right? Made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Nothing you did, right? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Amen. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, it's not about us. It's about his glory shown through us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Period. It doesn't end there, though, right? It says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So notice there that being, being is God's work. Our being is God's work. We're made alive in Jesus. You know, we're raised up. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms. By his grace, we are saved through faith. And all we do to get that is submit to him. Say, yeah, I'll take that. It is a gift of God. It is uh, undeserved and unearned. And only then does verse 10 express our doing which flows out of this state of being in Christ, right? Good works flow out of who we are in Jesus. I don't have to earn my place with him. I don't have to earn my my stripes with you. It comes out of a, a, a heart of love. We have nothing to prove to anybody, including God, right? He's put his stamp of grace, gracious ownership on uh, on us, and, and, and when he went to the cross for us, he did all of that work for us. It's not that we get saved, you know, and, and, and now we have to work to keep ourselves in his good graces either. We are fully his. We are fully in. He has grafted us into the family tree. We have full rights as sons. We are children. We are heirs to the promise. God's own through and through without fail, 110%, not just 100%, right? And out of gratitude and joy, we want to grow more deeply in his likeness, doing the things which he's call, he calls us to. And we can only make ourselves available to him, right? To turn from sin towards Jesus, to submit ourselves to his formative hand upon our soul. 
to lay ourselves down on the operating table. And this was inherent in Jesus' response to Satan during that temptation. He says, people who do not live on bread alone, but, but, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, my pursuit of my daily needs, my food, my shelter, my career, my status with you and all that kind of stuff, and how well I do all of that is, is not the source of my purpose and my meaning and my value. Not at all. doesn't matter if you're a surgeon or a janitor. Rather, my relationship with God is the source of my being. And I willingly submit myself to the tutelage and the transformative power of His Word. Placing myself under it in trust and faith that He has my best interest in mind all the time at 24-7 for the rest of my life forever. And, and He will shape my life to be the most honoring, wonderful thing it was meant to be in Christ. And this being makes a difference then, if you're living out of it, it makes a difference on how you pursue career and where you live and what you do with your time and your talent and your treasure. It makes a big difference. It bleeds out into every aspect of your life. It takes over. Because of who you are in Christ, you have, a, you have nothing to prove to anybody. It, it eradicates insecurity in your heart. And as my heart gets conformed to Jesus, more and more I begin to be about the things of Jesus instead of the things of Jason. I become less selfish and more sacrificial and giving. It overflows into my calling of making disciples of of, of others, of all peoples, right? Now I don't just pursue friends to make me happy or to make me feel good or or to reinforce my desires or my, my wants or you know, to, to, for my, you know, to bolster my personal goals or anything like that. Rather, I see everyone as fertile ground for the gospel. So every relationship I'm involved in, I make disciples. And out of that come really deep, much deeper, truer friendships, actually. This flies in the face of our conditioning. All of this stuff does. It really does. The patterns of this world, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 put it. When doing is, re- is placed before being, we need instant return on investment, right? When doing is placed before being, we need instant turn- return on investment. We need to see that what we've done is perceived to be valuable to you. Like, I need to see that so that I can feel valuable. It's a never-ending race. In extreme cases, we, we label that as insecurity. But even those who seem very confident can be living out of this. They've, they've just had more success, right, to feed the internal monster. But take away success and the monster dies. It's not necessarily positive affirmation that we seek or we crave either, Right? There are some of us who actually thrive on being hated. I'm sure you could identify some people, right? Given even the negative reaction of people makes us feel like we've done something. 
We've accomplished something. Ignore the narcissist and he dies, right? Yell at him or stroke him and he puffs up, right? See, all of this is reliant on people and how they react to us. And, and they usually never react how we want. We want them to, to, to react because they're not equipped. They're not made to be able to give us purpose and value and meaning. They're not. It's like two leeches gorging on each other. It's just a never-ending cycle. You're never filled. If we don't get the strokes that we desire, we have a sense of failure and we have a loss of self-image. So how much do you worry about what people think of you? Not that you shouldn't care about your witness, by the way. But I'm talking about in an insecure way. How much do you worry about what people think of you? Do you feel responsible for other people's feelings? Do relationships give you anxiety? Do you enjoy getting a rise out of people? Do you have an overwhelming need of approval or attention from others? Do you do things out of spite? Are you passive-aggressive? If, depending on how you've answered those things, right, you, you may be living out of a deadening self-gratification, a life of self-gratification, and not out of your identity in Jesus. That takes a lot of work to understand that. Because the person who is, who is settled in being in Christ or gaining their worth from the sheer fact that God says they are worthy, not by what they do, but by the fact that he's claimed them as his child, he's grafted them into the family tree, this person is joyously sort of detached from the need of accolades from others. They're patient when things don't go their way. They're calm in the midst of relational storms. They have nothing to prove to anybody. Jack Miller calls this living under the mantle of sonship, right? And not as a spiritual orphan any longer. We know who our father is. And they can be obedient to God even when it seems like obedience doesn't have like an immediate payoff for them. You know, being formed fights against the need for self-gratification like Jesus modeled in his temptation. He didn't need to do that thing right then. Those living under the need for self-gratification need results right away. They need results in the moment. Those being formed in Christ exhibit a patience or an open-ended, yielded nature even when things don't seem to make sense or things aren't going their way, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus seems to contradict everything I just said to you. How long have I been speaking? A little while now, right? Everything I just said to you, it seems like Jesus just totally wipes that away. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jason, go back to the drawing board. Your sermon sucks, right? But I would argue that Jesus is actually reinforcing this notion, even though it would seem that he's putting all the emphasis on what we do, since his 
following statement in verse 22 and 23 say this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And what's he mean by that? Well, he didn't contradict them. He didn't say, no, you didn't do those things. They did do those things. It means that there are those who can look very spiritual, you know, on the outside, doing all the right things, you know, all the religious things, but not out of a being in the presence of Jesus. And they do all of those religious things, but without relationship to him. Jesus isn't saying that those things are bad. Those things are most certainly good things. He's saying doing the work of Jesus without Jesus doesn't cut the mustard. It doesn't work. It's not good enough. You've got to come out of me. So we come full circle to our first and last point of our being, that we practice the presence of Jesus, that, that it's him who spiritually forms us. And that leads to the work of our calling of sharing him with others in the world. And he's pointing out the interrelationship of our being and doing. But they had it backwards, right? They had it backwards. Doing must flow out of being, not the other way around. It's Romans 15, 13, a very famous, our favorite verse of ours at 6, 8. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So doing is overflow. It's outflow of being in the presence of Jesus. A person in relationship to Jesus, not just as Savior, but actually who is Lord of their lives. There's a big difference. So in conclusion, spiritual formation isn't something that we do to ourselves or in ourselves, and it's not necessarily seen in all the amount of activity in our lives, even in the noble things of life. It's something God does in us and then through us into the lives of others. God isn't something to be grasped a hold of or or even understood or manipulated in our desire to control things or look good to other people. He's a person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Whom we're in relationship with, one we yield ourselves to, and He takes us deeper and deeper into our journey of faith. And we simply need to say yes and submit ourselves to Him. And if you think you've gone deep enough, you haven't. He can take you deeper. There are ways of putting ourselves on that operating table of the Spirit. There are ways of of submitting ourselves so that we can uh, experience more of this deeper life in Christ. One one simple way, and and the pastoral council has talked about this, we really want to see us be a people of the Word, right? And so memorizing Scripture is actually a very powerful way to keep the the life of Christ in front of you, right? And so the last sermon series we endeavored to to, uh, memorize Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I know that you've all done that. I know that you all, if I I called on one of you right now, 
You could do it, right? Yeah, I know that. But now I'd like you to memorize for this series, the next five weeks, two sets of verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2, great passage, like little two verses to, to memorize. And then Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, really powerful passages. If you can memorize those, those they just keep the Word of God right in the front of your mind. It, it helps you to walk through life really well. So that's, that's one tool. But secondly, I've asked all the spiritual mentors... Um, to help me out over the next five weeks, you know, so we're going to have five different spiritual mentors up here sharing for a few minutes um, one tool that they think is helpful in this spiritual formation of our lives. And so Jen's going to come up and wherever she is, I don't know where she is, there she is. Jen's going to come up and share with us for a few minutes and, um, and then we're going to do more. Can I use your area here? Will I get in trouble if I'm here? Okay. All right. Hi, everybody. My name's Jen. Um, It's interesting. So I'm going to talk to you this morning about silence. And it was interesting when I talked to Jason, as soon as we had this conversation, I had all these great ideas of things that I wanted to share with you. I wanted to share with you. And I'm getting the sign I need to back up. That I wanted to share with you. And I was out yesterday on a walk just taking some time by myself, and I heard God say that I just was really interested in impressing you, because I was like, that's what I'm doing. We do it unconsciously, and if you, you allow yourself to open, to open up your ears to hear God, those are the kinds of things that he like, likes to uncover for you. And so I would just offer that to you, that indeed I am not that spiritually impressive. I, if I had my choice, I'd be down there with you because that really is the reality of where we're at. It's an equal playing field. Like I look at Jason and I respect his Christian walk and there are other people here that I just have a lot of respect for. But in reality, God sees us and knows us deeply and we're all the same. And so when we think about silence as a spiritual practice, it's awesome because it's a great place for us to just let go and allow us just to be in the presence of God. And I don't know how you feel about silence. How do you handle silence? Do you avoid it? How do you fill space when you do have the opportunity to be quiet and to be silent? So we're actually going to, I'm going to give you the chance to experience that a little bit this morning. In one of the books that we read in our spiritual mentor training, the recommendation is maybe like 10 minutes of silence a day. If you've ever tried that, It feels like an eternity. And I would probably guess that many of us don't give ourselves that amount of silence. But when we think about silence in the context here with it being forming us spiritually, it looks a little bit different. So it's not just silence for the sake of being quiet. It's actually silence. I like to think of three parts. Silence, solitude, and prayer. So silence, obviously things get quiet. We you know, put down a book, put down our phone, device, etc. We turn our music off. Although you could maybe have some instrumental music playing, but the point of this practice is just that we sit in quiet. So there's silence. Solitude, obviously as a person, we know the word solitude means to be alone. But also in that aloneness is we bring with honesty who we are to God, right? And we get honest about it. Okay, so just like I said, you know what? I wanted to come up here and be very impressive. I'd like people to see me as somebody who's wise. I'd like people to see me as somebody who has my stuff together, right? 
But in reality, when you get honest with God, there are areas in each of our lives, if you're being honest, that we aren't together. There are things, places that we've been hurt that haven't been healed. And this is the place to bring all of that, all of who you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, before God and knowing that it's a safe place. Okay, so when I say solitude, that's what I'm thinking, where you're honest and you bring all of those things, the areas that you're trying to control, right, and place them before God. And then prayer, you just open yourself up. Seriously, you just open yourself up and you just be. When Jason said that, I literally was sitting back there and I wanted to just take a deep breath and, like, lean back because we don't get that often in our society. There's a million self-help books out there, and I've... I've tried that, even as a Christian, right? You try that. You try to make yourself better. This is where I want to be. But this practice is one that allows us to just sit back and allow God to speak and do whatever he wants with the time. That being said, and with all of the spiritual practices that you'll hear, there are some that you're going to be drawn to and some that you may not like. If any of you have little kids and you're trying to introduce them to new foods, it's said that you have to introduce them to something like six or seven times before they may like it, right? And you may find that some of the practices that we share, you may never like. They may never fit with you. And so there is grace and flexibility to say, you know what, that's not really for me. But my thought is, before you can say that, you have to try it, right? And in order to try it, you have to give it a chance, and you have to do it more than once. Okay, so that's the only thing that I'd offer to you or challenge you with. So silence. We're actually going to do this right now. I'm going to give you, obviously, not 10 minutes. The first time when we did this in spiritual mentor training, I confess I fell asleep, and I drooled heavily. And I'm not saying, I'm not kidding. It was the best sleep ever. Oh, my gosh. And I woke up, and I was like, where am I? It was like one of those, you know, you don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on. So if you do fall asleep, there's a lot of grace in all of these things. God's not here to bash you if you don't do it correctly, if it doesn't look right. It just is to experience more of God. That being said, get comfortable if you're not comfortable. If you need to put something down, if you need to scooch and find another seat, fine. If you're somebody that likes to stand, fine. Then you can go stand in the back. Sometimes I feel like I'm sitting so much. But for today, if you want to sit where you are, so place whatever you have in your lap aside. Right now, I'd like to invite you, if you can, just close your eyes. You don't have to close your eyes, but here, obviously, we're really not in solitude, so it might help you to focus a little bit more just to relax. So closing your eyes, and if you want, you can place your hands, your palms in your lap with your palms facing up. Good. And I'm going to open us and just say, um, Holy Spirit, please come. And for the next two minutes, I'd like you just to sit quietly, stand quietly wherever you're at. And open yourself up to whatever God has to say. Thank you, John. Psalms 145 verse 14 says, The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand 
you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. God, we thank you for your love and kindness and thank you for visiting us in this time and just for being with us. We love you. Amen.